0: The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. Hey, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you grab them and open them up to 1 Peter chapter 2, okay? 1 Peter chapter 2 is where we're gonna be this morning. Uh, if you have a phone or a tablet, you may turn that on and uh, glow your face to 1 Peter 2. Uh, there are also hardback black Bibles under every chair. We'd love for you to grab one of those, open that up. 1 Peter 2 can be found on page 1014. Uh, but we are in 1 Peter chapter 2 today, and today we get to talk about one of my favorite topics One of my favorite topics in the whole world to talk about We're going to talk about the church Yes, right? Like you're, you're like, obviously right? Obviously that's one of your favorite things to talk about You're a pastor And you started this church So uh, obviously A pastor talking about the church Is like a Chick-fil-A employee saying, my pleasure <laughs> Right? It's expected And frankly, I get a bit irate when they don't Say that to me, and that's so. So, I'm just I'm I'm here to serve you today by talking about the church. Okay, I think though this is a very uh, relevant topic. It, we'll see it in the text, but I think this is relevant for us today as well because statistically, in the United States of U.S. adults. Uh, there are those who say that they generally attend religious services once a month month or more. Those who would say, I attend once a month or more, continues. That stat, based on Barna Research and Pew Studies, continues to decline year after year after year. I mean, we we hear this all the time. I hear this all the time. Hey, pastor, I like Jesus, but I'm not interested in church. Hear it all the time. I hear it from my neighbors. I hear it from people at the grocery store. I hear it whenever i on the airplane, whenever somebody tells, uh, finds out that I'm a pastor, they're like, hey, I love your Jesus, don't really care for your organization. That's what I hear. And I think in some ways, that's because we, even us inside the church, we tend to look at what the church is currently rather than looking at the church as what it should be or even could be. So it's uh, the way I thought of it this week, it's like those house-flipping TV shows. Okay, you've seen these things? Uh, my wife loves them, loves every single one of them, okay? Uh, all of the house-flipping shows. HGTV is why we have to have TV in our house. Um, and if I'm honest, I, I think they're pretty cool too, okay? Just, just so you know, uh, they, they though they they certainly foster a delusion of grandeur in me, okay? Because what happens is I watch those shows, and then I look at my house, and I'm like... Gosh, if I, just, if I just blow that wall out, that bathroom's gone, and I've got a master suite. And then, you know, two hours later, a dozen trips to Home Depot, and all I've got is a wrecked house, and I'm calling a contractor. That's what those shows do to you, okay? That's what they do to me. But, but in these shows, this is what happens. Chip and Joe, or whoever the modern equivalent of them is today, they walk into a house that is a legitimate dump just like a dumpster fire happened inside of this home. And you're like, what happened to this place? Barely standing up, board on the windows, blood stains on the floor. You're like, good, this is a great spot. I should buy this, this house. But they walk in, pull back a little bit of wallpaper. They're like, look at this, it's shiplap. <laughs> Which just so you know, shiplap is code for spendy wood. It's expensive wood It's just wood on the walls That's all you need to know It's wood But they see that And unless you've got an eye for, for, for construction And design Like maybe they do You're watching the show going I don't know how they could possibly do anything With this heap of junk I can't even imagine it But you know what the problem With that sentiment is? The house isn't finished yet That's a problem With that thought. You can't judge those homes on first appearance, or even when they're midway through, but when it's all finished and they like move that bus or roll the thing away or you know, bring the family in, welcome home family, that sort of moment. It's like, oh my gosh. It's amazing. They show those side-by-side pictures of like the bloodstained floor and then like brand new hardwoods, and you're like, I want brand new hardwoods instead of blood, right? Like that's that's what happens. And it's because The designer had a better plan than we could even imagine. And I think that applies to church. I think it applies to our churches. See, sometimes we look around at the church and we say, what the heck is going on here? It's like a dumpster fire happened inside this place. Why is there a blood on the floor, right? We look at the church and sometimes we wonder these things. And sometimes, hear me, rightly so. Rightly so. It might be a mess, but the promise of the scripture concerning the church, concerning the church, isn't that we're going to understand everything that God is up to. The promise of the scripture is, hear me, that we'll love it when it's finished. That's the promise of the scripture when it comes to God's church. And that's where we're moving in Peter's letter. You're going to see this today in the text. Uh, Peter is moving from chapter one. In chapter one, he is handling individual Christians, calls us exiles, talks to us about being born again. He's dealing with people individually. And in chapter two, he addresses, he moves to address the corporate body of Christ, the church. And he doesn't call the church a fixer-upper. Actually, what he calls the church is this. He calls us a spiritual house. He calls us a spiritual house, but I'm getting ahead of myself, okay? Let's actually work into the text. First Peter chapter two, we're gonna pick it up in verse one, so let's look together at this. First Peter chapter two, starting in verse one. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now, verses 1 through 3 are kind of overlap verses from chapter 1 into chapter 2, okay? They overlap. So you remember what we talked about last week, that when you are born again, when you become a Christian, a new Christian, you're a baby. When you're a new Christian, you're a child, Spiritually, and the text just says that you are to long for and feast on pure spiritual milk, which he says is the gospel. The word of God is what Christians need to grow up. That's what we talked about last week, growing up. That was, I mean, I essentially just gave you a 45-minute message in one sentence. That's what last week was, okay? Now, though, after verse 3, Peter turns the corner. So we're not going to spend any more time there. Let's look at verse four because this is really where it really picks up. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So there's our metaphor, our metaphor for the day. God is building a spiritual house. He's building a spiritual house. And in this metaphor, in verses four and five, uh, every living person who comes to Jesus is called a living stone. He calls each one of us, each Christian, a living stone. In fact, right before that, he says that the living stone that was rejected, referring to Christ, that those who come to the living stone become living stones themselves. And those living stones are being put together, built together to form this spiritual house. So what Peter's talking about is the church. He's talking about the church here. You are a living stone. I am a living stone. Every single Christian in the world is a part, a stone, a part of the spiritual house that God is building. Now, the metaphor continues. Look at verse six. Peter says, for it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone So Peter here quotes the prophet Isaiah. That's what he's doing. He's quoting Isaiah to bring this metaphor even into tighter focus. So follow with me here, the metaphor. The church is a spiritual house. We are all living stones being built up. And what we just heard is that Jesus is not just the living stone. He's now called the cornerstone of this building. Now, cornerstones, we don't use any longer, but let me explain. In ancient times, a cornerstone is the first stone that is placed in the foundation building before you would build a building, okay? And so two things that you need to know about a cornerstone. Two things. First, the cornerstone needs to be true. It needs to be true. That is perfectly chiseled, It needs to have the correct angles, it needs to all be square. It has to be perfect. The cornerstone has to be perfect because all the other stones for the foundation of this building come off of the original lines from that cornerstone. Okay, so if you want a jacked up foundation and a jacked up building, get you a jacked up cornerstone. But if you want it to be true, if you want it to be level, if you want it to be good, you need a good cornerstone. It needs to be true. But then the second thing that you need to know about the cornerstone, yes, it needs to be true. Second though, it needs to be strong. There's different types of stone that can be used in foundation building, but for that first stone, that cornerstone, it needs to be strong because it needs to last. Without the cornerstone, there's no frame of reference for future shifting, for future movements, for future repairs. If that thing crumbles, if that thing breaks, then the the foundation is compromised and the building is essentially compromised as well. The cornerstone of a building needed to be true and it needed to be strong. And, And what the text just said is that Christ is the cornerstone of the church, Christ is that cornerstone. He's he's the foundation of the foundation, you might say. That's who Jesus Christ is to the church. And what I want to offer you is this. Many churches succumb to the temptation to build the church on something other than Jesus Christ. Now, they would never say it. They would never say it. But they, but they do it in fact. So, so, so let, me, let me give these to you. There are many other cornerstones that you could build a church on, and this is where things I think get screwy, and I might just posit this to you. If the church that you are looking at looks more like a fixer-upper, it might be because they built it on the wrong cornerstone. Not the only reason why it might need some work but it might be that the cornerstone is wrong and you might have to do some digging to figure out what that cornerstone actually is. So for example, you can attend a church and build a church on highly experiential and passionate worship services and experiences. You can build a church on that, like a worship centered church. These churches tend to live or die based upon the gathered Sunday morning services and the effects thereof. All right, And and, and now hear me, worship services, I'm not saying they're a bad thing. This is what I do. (laughs) This is my job. I'm doing it right now. We're here together right now at a worship service. These are a big deal, a big deal. But listen, they make a shady cornerstone. They are not the cornerstone of the church. You can build a church um, on missions causes, on missions and outreach causes, okay? Uh, The main focus of some churches uh, can be missions. That's the main thing for the church, to care for the least and to share with the lost. Like that's the missional church model. And again, so good, so good, like missions. No one is gonna say that missions are bad, but they're not the cornerstone of the church. They can't be the foundation of the foundation, and then you can even build a church on community. You've heard of these, right? Community churches. I don't think they meant to add that into their name just to make this point. But listen, your main focus, especially in modern American Western evangelicalism, can be connecting people into tight-knit friend groups where they can love and be loved and they can, quote, do life together. Right? That's, I mean, that's a thing. Like, belonging can be the highest value in a local church. And, and listen to me. I love that you love one another. We just did the church survey a couple, a couple weeks ago. You do. You really love each other. Like, that's great. I want you to have friends here. I want you to have community here. But hear me. That ain't the cornerstone. That's not the foundation of the foundation. Because here's what can happen. If you build the church on worship experiences, like if you build it on worship experiences as the cornerstone, it can quickly become a production and a concert and an emotionally charged event rather than a church. And if you build the church on mission causes as the cornerstone, the church can quickly become just another nonprofit an NGO, a social justice banner waiver rather than a church. And if you build the church on community as the cornerstone, listen, and we've been there, I'm sure you have, it can quickly become a social club. There's a click, there's an in-group, there's not room for you to belong, right? It can become your friend group or hear me, this is new, this is popular, it can become a therapeutic support group for you. And it's not at that point a church any longer. At, listen, the church is not less than those things I just mentioned. It's just far more. It's far more than those things. Those cornerstones, listen, they're not true enough and they're not strong enough to bear the weight of what Christ calls the church to be. It's just not true. So if you're looking for a church right now, if you're newer to here, or or maybe listen, when you leave Fathom at some point, okay, Always try to figure out what the foundation is in your church. Functionally. Functionally, what is the most important thing? What's holding the whole thing together? Because you need to know what that is. And if it's not Christ, you need to find you another church. The cornerstone of the church is Christ. It's Jesus Christ. And listen, that wasn't even the meat of the sermon. That was the introduction, okay? Okay. So what is the spiritual house actually supposed to look like? Well, that's where I want us to really spend our time. So let's look at verse nine. This is where things I think get real interesting. He says this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Uh, This is a memory verse kind of verse, okay? 1 Peter Peter 2, 9, memorize this one. This one is worth your time because it gives us four, I think, robust descriptions of what the church, the living stones being built together into a spiritual house is supposed to look like. Four things, we're gonna walk through them together. First, you are a chosen race. We, the church, we are chosen race. Now, we have talked already in First Peter about identity and citizenship and exile and all of that. But just as way of reminder, we're not gonna spend much time here. Uh, if you are a Christian, your primary identity is Christian. That's your primary identity, okay? You are a part of that race, is what Peter would say, okay? So that means for me, I am not primarily American. Though I love America, go America, right? Love it, okay? Uh, I'm, I'm first a Christian. I, I, I'm not primarily a man, male, okay? Though I am a man. I'm, I'm, some might say the man, all right? This guy knows, okay? No, 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 no. I am a man, but, but that's not my primary identity. I am first a Christian. I, I, I am not primarily white, though I am Larry Bird white in some ways, okay? But, but, but I'm a Christian first. Christianity Christian who you are in Christ is your primary identity. That's what Peter means by race. You are primarily a citizen of another place, a citizen of heaven. But then he adds the adjective chosen. Okay, so we are a chosen race. Now now that's an unbelievably important doctrine to get our heads around. That you are chosen. The Bible says that the church is chosen. God chose us. So uh, this is an unbelievably point of theology. You need to know this. God chose us first. God chose us first. Now, we each have to respond to the call of God, okay? So in your conversion, you choose him. It's like you choose him back, all right, but 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 we do have a choice. It's just it always follows that God chooses us first. He initiates, he moves towards us first, and we respond to that move. And that idea of choosing, sometimes we call it election, sometimes we call it predestination. But the idea that God chooses us doesn't just show up in the New Testament. It's actually based on God's people, Israel, the Israelites, in the Old Testament. Israel was elected, was chosen by God. And the question that comes up multiple times in the Old Testament is, why? Like, why did God choose Israel? Why did God choose us? Why did God choose them? And if you study your Old Testament, you'll find that it's filled with mysterious explanations. Mysterious explanations as to why God chose Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But one of my favorite explanations comes in in Deuteronomy chapter seven. Let me read this to you. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Why did you choose us, God? Well, look at verse seven. It was not because you were more in number. Than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you? For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you. So this text is interesting, and this is not unique. I could show you dozens of others like this, but it's like, hey, God, uh, what was it about me that made me chosen? Like, what was it in me? Is it because I'm so good? Is it because we're good? Is it because we're strong? Is it because we're just so incredibly good looking? Like, what is it about us that made you choose us? And God's like, "Uh, actually, there wasn't really anything about you (laughs) that was worth choosing. right? Like, you didn't actually have that much going for you when I picked you, when I chose you. That's how, that's essentially how, I mean, that's my paraphrase, but that's how God answers that question. Why did you choose us? It wasn't because of you. Now, listen, that would never work out in most relationships in this world, right? Like, can you imagine me doing that in my marriage? Like Marcy and I, okay, we just celebrated our, our anniversary, and we, let's just pretend we went out on anniversary date night, and Marcy at dinner asks me, hey, Chris, uh, what was it that caused you to fall in love with me? You know, she bats her eyes and plays innocence, but she's fishing for a compliment at that point. You know what I'm talking about? In those moments. um, What if I had said, at anniversary dinner, nice dinner, candlelight, food, you know, appetizers, all that stuff? What if I said, oh, well, you know what? It's easy. It wasn't because you were beautiful, because you weren't. (laughs) See how this would have gone? You know? It wasn't because you're just so smart. Because, gosh, you were you kind of dumb. Actually, man, the conversation was mind-numbing at times. Like, can you imagine how that would go? That would never go. That would never work. Now, listen, Marcy and I, we've, we, we've known each other for more than 20 years. And hear me, over time, especially in marriage, I do think that I've come to love her in a way that's deeper than her beauty, that's deeper than her intelligence, that's deeper than those things. Like, if they were taken away from her, my love for her wouldn't change. But listen, that's just not how things begin in human relationships, right? There are things that attract us to choose other people. That's the truth with human relationships. But that is not how it works with God. That's not how it works with God. I didn't choose Israel because they were great, because they had such potential. No, actually, they were the smallest. They were the weakest They were looked down upon. No, I chose to love you. Did you see the last line? I chose to love you because I love you. That's a beautiful redundancy. Christian, Jesus chose to love you because he did. Because he loves you. It's more akin to a fatherly love, a parent love. It doesn't need, nor can it give, explanation. It just is. I love you because I love you. The church is a chosen race. Why'd he choose us? Not because of this guy. Right, look. He chose us because he did. Because he loves us. Next, number two. You are a royal priesthood. You're a royal priesthood. Uh, now, that's a loaded metaphor that we need to unpack a little bit. Uh, so what he said, let's take the second word first. In the church, we are a priesthood. In the church, we are all priests. So if you, like me, were raised Catholic, call your Catholic grandma today. Tell her, hey, Pastor Chris told me I'm a priest. She'll be royally confused, okay? Okay. You want to know what's happening, okay? But, but, but the Bible just said that we, the church, the living stones being built up as a spiritual house are a royal priesthood. Now, in the Old Testament, in Israel's temple, there were priests. So that's what Peter's referring to, priests, okay? And the job of the priests, listen, was to represent God's people before God. That's what the priests did. They would show up in the temple or the tabernacle. They would come there. They would make sacrifices to God on behalf of God's people. They represented the people to God. And you didn't get to just pick if you wanted to be a priest. Like nobody can just like sign up for priest at like junior high church or a job fair or something like that, right? This isn't like, what do you want to do when you grow up? Well, I want to be an athlete or a cowboy or a priest. No, it's not like that. You don't get to pick if you're a priest, okay? Priests had to come from the line, the tribe of Levi, from the descendants of Aaron, Moses' brother. Okay? You were born into the line of priests. You didn't get to choose it. But now what Peter is saying is in the church, you're not born into being a priest. You are born again into being a priest. If you are born again, if you are a born again Christian, you're a priest. This doctrine, this Protestant doctrine is known as the priesthood of all believers. The priesthood of all believers. You'll study this if you study theology. The priesthood of all believers uh, means that you are a priest and you get to go to God on behalf of other people. You get to represent people before God. We call that intercessory prayer. Praying for someone, for a people. You represent people to God. So you're a priesthood. We are a priesthood. You're all priests, okay? I'm not a priest. Well, I, I mean, I am just not privileged, like different from you. We are all priests. But the other word that he uses is that we are a royal priesthood. Now, that's really interesting. That's really interesting Because, we just said, the priests come from the tribe of Levi. Tell me where the king comes from. Judah, yeah, yeah. The tribe of Judah. The king is the the, the king of the tribe of Judah. Jesus would be the, 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 the lion of Judah. So, we are a priesthood, but we are a royal priesthood. But in the reality of the Old Testament, kings weren't ever allowed to be priests. And vice versa. Kings couldn't be priests. Priests couldn't be kings. Kings aren't allowed to do the things that priests did. Kings didn't make sacrifices. Kings kings didn't intercede on behalf of God's people. It only happened twice in Old Testament literature that we find a king crossing the threshold and doing what a priest did. In 2 Chronicles 26, a king named Uzziah did this and God struck him with leprosy until the day that he died. Didn't go well for him. The other one we studied last year in 1 Samuel. Remember what happened? Remember who it was? Saul. Yeah, King Saul makes a sacrifice before Samuel the prophet shows up, and the kingdom was torn from him because of that. So nobody in the Old Testament was ever both king and priest with one exception that I don't have time to get into, a weird guy called Melchizedek, and I don't have time for this. He shows up obscurely in Genesis 14. I'm just saying this so that you don't send me an email. We can talk about Melchizedek another time, okay? We don't have time today, but I'm just telling you like this. King and priest, two offices that never went together. Never went together. And hear me, you wouldn't want to combine them. Here's why you wouldn't want to combine them. It'd be like combining policeman and pastor. Policeman and pastor, put both of those roles into the same role, and you're in big trouble. I am a pastor, okay? If you confess to me, confess something that you've done wrong to me, I'll pray for you. Pray for you. Represent you to God. If you confess to a police officer, this is not going to go well for you. Because the police officer is about the law. The pastor is about grace. The police officer is about upholding rule. The the, the pastor is about helping you overcome your brokenness. And so king and priest were never combined because the king, the king in Israel, is the law upholder. Before they called them kings, they called them judges. Judges. Because the top dog in Israel was the judge. He was about justice and truth. But the priesthood, the priest was a friend. He, the book of Hebrews calls the priests counselors. The priest is the one you come to when you messed up. You don't go to the king with that. You go to the priests. Whereas the priest represented the people to God, listen, the king represented God to the people. Those are the differences. Now the kings all through ancient Israel did it horribly, just horribly. We don't have time for that either. The king is a person of justice. The priest is a person of mercy and they can't combine those offices until Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is called both the king of kings and our great high priest. He is the only one who does both. The living stone was both king and priest. Now we are living stones and Jesus is our cornerstone and therefore we get to enact that same office. We get to be royal priests. So we get to go to God on behalf of people sharing grace and we get to go to people on behalf of God sharing truth. It's both the church is supposed to be a place where the truth of the king and the the grace and mercy of a priest are merged into one community. I mean, that's fascinating. It's fascinating. I'm I'm encouraged by it. Okay, Uh, third description of the church. We're gonna keep moving. Third description of the church. We are a holy nation, a holy nation. I'm not going to spend as much time here because we covered holiness two weeks ago. Um, but do you remember what the Hebrew word for holy was? Anybody? Kadesh. That's okay. That's all right. He's, he's got his. Yeah, you've got it open. That's cheating. I have it written in my manuscript too, so that's cheating. Uh, Kadesh. Okay, it means cut away. It means Separate. The church is a holy nation, a different nation, a set-apart nation. We are different. We are a different nation inside of this nation that we live in. When people come to church, listen, it should be like they are entering into a different, a holy, a set-apart nation. So the way to best think about this, in my opinion, is to think about the church like an embassy, like an embassy, if you've uh, been abroad, you've traveled abroad, you know that you can find an American embassy in most countries, an American em- embassy. And the embassy represents one country in, a, in another country, in a foreign country, okay? So if you find the American embassy in France or whatever, you go in there, they speak English in there. They, they, they speak English, there are American citizens there. F- France has no legal authority in the American embassy, because it's considered sovereign American soil in that one little plot in wherever in France that is, okay? Um, And when you gather with the church, it's supposed to be like you're in another nation, like you're in another country. Like this is different than when you leave these doors. It's supposed to be because we are with our people. This is a holy nation, okay? And then finally, number four, the fourth description is that we are a people for his own possession. His own possession. I love this idea, this this phrase, this thought, that we are God's possession. That feels controlling in our modern vernacular. We don't think of possession as something that's, I mean, that sounds like, oh, he's very possessive. And and that's not exactly what this means, okay? A people for his own possession is, is very different. We are God's possession. He is possessive of us, The Bible says that our God is jealous. He's a jealous God. He wants his church. We are his possession. He is jealous for us. Now, whenever I teach about God's jealousy, God's possession of us, I always have to make make this mention that it's not that God is jealous of us, Like, that would be strange. That would be weird if God was jealous of us. We're not saying that he is jealous of us. No, God is jealous for us. He's jealous for us. And here's how I've always illustrated this. Um, Before I met my wife, Marcy, uh, I had been in other relationships. I dated other, other gals, and she had dated other guys before she met me. But when we started dating, and then we got engaged, and then on our wedding day, we made vows... Declaring that for the rest of our lives We would forsake all others That's what you say in a marriage vow Now hear me Imagine what would happen If Marcy just kept getting hit up By old crushes and boyfriends On like Facebook and Instagram Just like sliding into her DM or whatever Like doing those things Like, like imagine if she just kept clicking on those things And just like responding to ex-boyfriends and stuff Okay I would not like that I would not like that. Why? I mean, it's obvious, but I'll say it. Because all lovers are jealous. If you love something, if you love someone, you will be jealous for that person. Not jealous of her. Not like, oh man, I wish my exes would DM me, right? No, that's just dumb, okay? That's just dumb. I'm jealous for her because I love her. This is my daughter Harper. I'm jealous for my daughter because I love my daughter. And if anyone or anything tries to turn their love for me or my love for them, you would see an aggressive side of me that the Bible would call wrath. That's what he calls it. The God of wrath only shows up because there is a God Of love, a jealous God. So, church, those four things a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for his own possession. When we look at the church, that's what we're supposed to see. That's the spiritual house that's being built, the living stone. We as living stones being built together, Christ as our cornerstone into a spiritual house that does those things. Not weird, goofy stuff with the wrong cornerstone and the wrong foundation, but that's what the gospel says the church is about. Now there's one more verse in this passage, so let's look at verse 10 and we'll close this up. Verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. In that last verse, in verse 10, uh, it's fascinating. Peter does something really interesting. He is alluding to uh, a verse from the Old Testament prophet Hosea. He's alluding to, it doesn't say in your footnotes, but that is an allusion to Hosea chapter two, I believe. But let me just read this. Hosea is an interesting book, uh, a minor prophet in our Old Testament. This is from Hosea chapter one, verse two. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Now, if you had told me 20 years ago when I became a Christian that I would stand up in front of a group of people and say whoredom on repeat, I would have just been shocked, okay? But, But that's what's happening today. Here we are, okay? Hosea is a weird book. It's a weird prophet. If you read it, it's very interesting. But let me paint a picture of what's going on, what just happened in this verse, okay? God comes to his man, his prophet, Hosea. And he says, Hey, Hosea, I want you to marry a prostitute. It's shocking. I mean, it's shocking. And I want you to have children with this prostitute. Her name is Gomer. Beautiful name, right? Beautiful name. If you're uh, pregnant with a baby, I don't know if it's a girl or not, I don't want to know, uh, but consider Gomer, okay? Just <laughs> lovely. Hosea and Gomer a love story that never should have been. Okay. But Hosea and Gomer have kids. Now listen here, the the first daughter that they have, her name is no mercy. And their son who is born after no mercy, he is named, not my people, no mercy and not my people. You see our text? Once you were not a people. Once you had not received mercy, he's alluding to Hosea. And God in the book of Hosea puts in Hosea's heart. Now hear this. You have to hear this. He puts in his heart a love for Gomer that mirrors God's love for his people. That's the kind of love that God puts in Hosea's heart for this prostitute. This is not just, "Ah, I hate this woman but I'll marry her because you said I have to, God. That's not what's going on in Hosea. No, God put in Hosea's heart to love, to pursue, to be ferociously committed to Gomer, the prostitute. And despite his love for her, despite his romance and his care and his pursuit and him trying desperately to help her flourish, Gomer repeatedly cheats on him. Repeatedly, she whores herself out to other men. And at one point in the book, it actually becomes the property of another man. Hosea sees that, sells some of his possessions. And seriously, this is what the book says. He buys his wife back, the mother of his children, back from another man and marries her again. This this is gut-wrenching. That's the image that Peter is pointing to. He's pointing back to Hosea, and here's what he's saying That's us. That's you, and that's me. Once we weren't his people. Once we we didn't have his mercy. Once we played the role of whore. But now you're God's people. Now you have received mercy. He's the one who pursues us and we are Gomer. And what Peter's saying is that's the, the picture of how he's building us into a spiritual house. It should, that, that, that image of the, of the Hosea Gomer thing, that image of the living stones being built up into a spiritual house, that should change how we see the church. It should change how we do church. It should change how we see one another. So I just want to ask you this. How have you engaged with the church? With the house, the spiritual house? Gosh, you just see church left and right, and you see it jacked up like a fixer-upper. And again, like I said, sometimes it's legitimately broken. But listen, we have a chance Like you, me, we have a chance to be living stones, to be a part of a spiritual, life-giving house that will last forever. This is Christ's church. Gosh, this is better than packed house rooms with hazers and lasers and experiences and hearts that are just passionate for Jesus. Listen, this is better than that. This is better than churches that are going and taking care of every person and every social cause and, and saving people and sharing their faith all over the place. And those things are great, but this is better than that. Gosh, this is better than you finding close, lifelong friendships that you can do life together with. Oh, golly, I hope all of those things happen. Maybe not the lasers. I hope all of that stuff happens. But that's, that the church is supposed to be bigger than that better than that, stronger than that, truer than that, because we're built on the cornerstone. This is what we've been called to. We've been chosen to be royal priests who connect people to God, holy, set apart, ambassadors in his embassy. And here's what he said back in verse nine, to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Where have you missed this? Where do we need to become this? God help us. Let's pray together. Lord, we do bless your name. We do bless you for this chapter, for those 10 verses, for the beautiful picture that you paint of, of what your church your bride, the very thing you came and died for could become. Lord, I pray here for us as living stones that we would have correct view of church, that we would each individually see that we are a part of this, that we are a building block, a literal stone to be built up together into a house, a house where we can proclaim your excellencies. God, I pray um, a, just a prayer of confession where I've, I've looked at the church and seen it more as a fixer-upper than as your holy and good and divine work. Lord, call us higher than that. Call us to better places, to better visions for the church. And God, help us to do this. You have not called us to anything that you will not empower us to accomplish. And so, so empower us, Holy Spirit. We love you, Lord. We ask these things in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit. Amen.